Hello, and welcome to Critical Q&A for 2024, uh, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos. Hey, everybody. I am so happy to be back. Uh, and we are hitting the ground running. Uh, this is the first weekend of our returns, first weekend of 2024, and uh, good times all around. I, I actually am very, very excited. Uh, I've got some, uh, if you have not checked out my uh, Critical Conversation show that we did on Friday where me and my wife sat here and talked with y'all or checked out the new Speaking of Cults podcast that I have posted uh, yesterday on Saturday, uh, I definitely recommend you check those things out because I got a lot of good stuff in there. And uh, yeah, and I'm looking forward to continuing this show into 2024 and beyond. And I wanted to start start stressing with you, the audience, that you send me questions that maybe are not necessarily all related to Scientology, because I want to start addressing broader, bigger topics when it comes to cults and cultic influence and control. And I can and uh, am more than happy to answer questions regarding coercive control or manipulation or propaganda or influence or the spectrum of influence or how these things happen. Um, other mental phenomena, of course, connected with all of this from you know, logical fallacies and cognitive dissonance to uh, motivated reasoning and double binds and all of the stuff that we have talked about for uh, for some time on this channel as factors to why people uh, can get into or keep themselves in a cult headspace. And, uh, and that really is sort of the direction of my channel into moving forward in 2024 is moving kind of away from the Scientology stuff and moving to the bigger, wider picture of cults and cultic influence and coercive control. And even, by the way, how this applies in other domains like domestic violence or domestic situations or uh, gangs and trafficking and things like that. Coercive control as a topic, uh, according to my education in the matter, is a broad subject that covers a lot of human behavior. And it's not just siloed into one cultic area and certainly not to just one cult called Scientology. And so anyway, just kind of throwing this out here for you in terms of questions to ask me. Uh, I'm happy to answer Scientology-related questions, but I just want to point out I've been doing it for 10 years now, and I am ready to move on to bigger and broader topics. And I'd like your help with that because the questions I answer here are from you. All right, so that all being said, uh, I also wanted to throw out a word for two things. Uh, one, this this channel and my work is entirely fan-funded by you guys, and I want to encourage you to uh, support this channel through Patreon. That is actually the best way to do it uh, because I get the most um, sort of return from that. Of course, YouTube memberships on the channel here or direct support of me through PayPal or Buy Me a Coffee or Venmo. Links to all of these are below in the description section to this video and every video I produce. But uh, all of that is appreciated. Don't get me wrong. But um, but definitely Patreon support is awesome because it is a committed long-term sort of support plan. And you can sign up on Patreon for any amount you want. There are preset amounts that you can choose, but you're not limited to those. You can select the little box and choose any amount you want for support. This is a question that comes up from time to time. Maybe it's not the easiest service to use, but it has been the most steady for me, and it has been um, a very... Uh, easy and nice way to support the channel. So anyway, I put that out there. And I also wanted to, and you're going to hear even more stress about this over this coming year as we're moving forward. I wanted to also put forward for you that I offer consult consultation services to you. Uh, the, the public. If you want to contact me for one-on-one -on -one assistance, direction, support, guidance, education, advice, or even just somebody to, uh, to listen and understand, I can do those things. And I am more than happy to. I have a uh, a successful track record with this already established. And moving forward, I want to sort of build this and offer this as a service to you. Uh, you can contact me through my website, mncriticalthinking.com, or uh, by email, as always, at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Uh, either one of those, uh, I will get the message same day. 
and um, and I offer economical services. I am not offering therapy. I am not a therapist. That's not the kind of psychology or psychologist that I am. Uh, I am a consultant, right? I advise, I help, I educate, uh, but I do not offer treatment modalities or, or, or psychological counseling or treatment. Uh, that's never been uh, something I'm trained in or uh, am doing. All right, so I wanted to throw those things out there for you, and on those happy notes, let's get on with answering your questions now. Steve Wood, if Scientology is so intent on clearing the planet, why would they not offer Scientology services for free, as presumably that would get the job done a hell of a lot quicker than the almost non-existent progress they are currently making? Do you think Scientologists feel that because they're paying for it, they will achieve their goals quicker than if it was free? Does their mind believe paying for it makes it better than if it was free? All right, Steve, thank you very much for this. And I was actually pulling up some Scientology scriptures to address this, but I, um, they're in the, anyway, there are technical issues uh, that I'm dealing with. I had a hard drive loss recently, and my entire Scientology library was on there. And so I didn't lose everything, uh, thankfully, and I did have some backups, but uh, quite a bit was lost, and I'm restoring all of that. So it's been a little bit of uh, behind-the-scenes work over the last couple of weeks on that. Now, uh, that doesn't prevent me from answering your question, though. I just can't uh, quote directly from L. Ron Hubbard's policy letters at this moment. But the subject of exchange is key in Scientology. L. Ron Hubbard wrote many policies and writings and lectured about this topic uh, at length. He very, very much believed in you don't get something for free ever, ever, ever. You always get paid for it. Uh, and in fact, he even wrote um, a policy I found uh, that was pretty cryptic about how you charge based on how much you've helped the person across their dynamics. In other words, across their whole life. The more you've helped them, the more you should charge. It was sort of this sort of liquid idea of how much you know should auditors get paid or something. Anyway, the, the Scientology is, at the end of the day, let's be crystal clear and bluntly honest about something in regards to the Church of Scientology. Uh, they are a church in name only. They are a religion in name only. This is all window dressing for the, the, the con that L. Ron Hubbard established and called the Church of Scientology. Uh, and this con is all about making money. It is a money-making scheme that is disguised as a legitimate religion. That is, in a nutshell, the Church of Scientology. Um, now you can, and I have at length discussed the, you know, the sort of philosophical and occult foundations of Scientology and how, and where L. Ron Hubbard's head was at in terms of uh, magical rituals and incantations and how auditing serves that function for L. Ron Hubbard and and, and the whole thing also serves to uh, sort of slam his name into history, which is something he wanted since the 1930s, and serves to give him a kind of immortality. And that is also a goal that Hubbard had, knowing full well that if his name was on the lips of people into the future, that he would always be alive. He would always be around. Um, again, kind of magic-y, occult-y, weird you know, thinking. Um, but for practical purposes, in terms of the nuts and bolts, day-to-day -day operations of what Scientology is about, it's a money-making con. That's, it's a scam. That's what it is. So the real answer to your question is, of course, that Scientologists are convinced through lots of policies and lots of lecturing that exchange for anything and everything is vital. And True enough, tit for tat, giving back and forth, right? Getting what you're giving, giving what you're getting. These are fundamental concepts to success in life. There's no question about this. And if Hubbard had been a little bit more um, sincere in applying these principles in his own personal life, then I might possibly give him more credibility for having talked about it so much. But instead, Hubbard uses and curves the concepts of exchange to convince his staff and his followers that they need to be producing more than adequate exchange. They need to be going to what he referred to as the fourth condition of exchange. He laid out four conditions, and he said the highest or the fourth condition 
population, the one that we really want our staff and, and, and Scientologists to be producing is the exchange in abundance, where you give better than expected service, better than expected quality, without breaking the bank in the process, right, was sort of his concept. And again, it sounds good until you put it into practice and realize that when the Sea Org is operating as a slave labor camp, that maybe we're taking this too far. And that is exactly the case, of course. So, um, so the staff or the public of Scientology are convinced through, again, through these writings that exchange is very important. Uh, Hubbard wrote about um, also policies uh, for the treasury divisions in Scientology organizations that free service was tantamount to uh, a criminal act. And that any staff member who was found to be giving away services or delivering services without a paid invoice in hand would be found liable for paying for that service themselves. They'd be, they'd be on the hook for it. So every staff member of the Scientology churches are, are drilled in to not giving free service. There are... Um, there is one place where you can go in Scientology, in a Scientology organization, per its policies, where you can get free auditing or free service. And this would be auditing that's delivered by students or by interns, people who are interning as, as auditors. And, um, and these would be paying public who would, are doing their auditor training in the course rooms or in the internship. And... Uh, they need people to audit. And maybe there is nobody who is paid the church for some auditing that week, and they don't they can't get somebody who's paid. So they need to find somebody else to re, to audit their requirements so that they can complete their course or complete their internship. And this is referred to as the Free Scientology Center. And it's something that's supposed to exist in the public divisions area, in the Div 6 area of the Scientology Church. And um, and students and, and org uh, staff members and public can take advantage of this if there are these you know, auditors available for auditing. But that would only apply for auditing. You would never get coursework for free. You would never... Um, uh, yeah, basically, because Scientology delivers auditing and it delivers training. So none of the training is ever free unless you get it awarded to you, which is a different matter because then you're exchanging your work for it. Um, so the auditing is always supposed to be paid for unless you're getting it again through this free Scientology center. That's the only place uh, and time where free service is sanctioned by Scientology. Otherwise, it's cash in hand before we even begin delivery. And of course, you know, that makes perfectly good business sense. And I'm sure many of you have been listening to my answer and going, well, yeah, yeah, this all makes sense because this is good business. But is it good religion? Is this how religion should operate? Should they be operating on profit? And should they be operating on cash in hand before any delivery? Does that sound like a charitable organization to you? See, this is the contrast with calling Scientology a religion. It's supposed to be a religion. I can walk into almost any Catholic church here in town in Denver. I could ask them for a copy of the Bible, and they would give me one, and they would sit down and talk with me for hours if I wanted to about faith and belief and, and the nature of it and all of that, and I wouldn't have to pay a dime. And I could walk out of there with a Bible and other literature, I'm sure, uh, not so with Scientology. Not so at all. So just to pay, just to compare and contrast a little bit here, uh, yeah, it makes all good business sense, but it's hardly what we call charitable or nonprofit or religious activity. And uh, anyway, there you go, Stefan. I was wondering if you could share a bit more on induced phobias in cults. After much reading, it seems like one of the key ways they get you in. Not just love bombing, but sharply and suddenly introducing a phobia. When I got into Scientology, I never had the concept of the universe blowing up or I had to save my eternity or else. To say nothing of KSW. F you, Ron. Thanks for nothing. All right. Thank you very much for this stuff, uh, Stefan. I appreciate the question. And, um, and it's a great one. Uh, certainly, uh, KSW and uh, et cetera, et cetera. There is a ton of what we call phobia induction or uh, creating fear 
in the minds of cult members or followers in order to control them. And this usually falls under cult retention more so than cult recruitment, um, at least as I'm th- sort of thinking about it right now, in that you sk- you you want to draw people into a cult with good feelings, good experiences, euphoric, awe-inducing experiences, and then you keep them there by inducing fear and further awe, right? There's trauma bonding where it's good and bad. And part of the bad is introducing fear. Um, and this doesn't have to take a long time to get around to. This could happen on day one or two in the case of certain uh, things that, say, Scientology gets up to. So let's use that as an example. Um, you walk in, you do your personality test, you get convinced to get on course and get started on the uh, you know ups and downs in life course or something or personal values and integrity. And, uh, and you're on your you know, second or third day in the course room and you show up late. And the supervisor sits you down and says, hey, what's, uh, you know, you showed up late. What happened? Oh, I was talking to my girlfriend and she was, you know, saying maybe Scientology isn't so great. And why do I need to go down there three nights a week and this kind of thing? And I was telling her, I was just explaining it to her and I went a little late. I'm sorry. And the supervisor, of course, would have his hackles go up at, at, at this news uh, in any Scientology church, right? And say, oh, what, wait, wait, no, what, what's this about your girlfriend now? Right. And uh, and they'd want to know all about this. Right. What, what do you what do you mean? She's giving you a hard time about this. What's what's happening? And uh, and, and then, of course, it really is just nothing really much. It's just that the, the, the girlfriend wants to hang out with him or whatever. Or maybe she's got some real problem with Scientology specifically. And uh, and now the supervisor has to find out all about this. Well, in the course of doing this, the person's might, you know, the, the, this new public person, this new Scientologist, might be like, well, you know, I, you know, I, 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 what's the big deal? Is this, is this really a problem? And, and, oh, you know, oh, oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. This is a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, because if you have people, you are, and here's the supervisor explaining to this new fledging Scientologist, well, listen, let me tell you why this is a problem, right? Because if you have people in your life who are giving you a hard time or are counter intention, if they are, if their intention is, counter to yours in your life, if they have, uh, if they don't want you to succeed or want you to grow or become better or find out more about life and yourself and how else it all works by coming here and doing classes, if they, if they don't want you doing that, there's probably, there, there's a problem there, isn't there? Don't you, don't you think? I mean, isn't this somebody who isn't really have your best interests at heart and this is your girlfriend now? How long have you been connected with her? Right, and now the supervisor is is now going to dig in and find out more about this, and who is this woman, and what 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 is this criticism about, and dig dig dig, and they're going, and he's going to communicate, and if it's not the supervisor, it'll be the ethics officer who's doing this, but one of these guys is going to sit this person down and explain the facts of life to him that you cannot have people who are connected to you who are hostile or antagonistic to Scientology. And if you do, they're going to hurt you. They're going to harm your spiritual progress. They're going to get in your road because you're trying to go this way and they're standing in the way. They don't just have other ideas. They're actually in your road. And that's bad. They mean you harm, right? If, if you were trying to run to put out a burning fire and somebody was getting in your way, well, that person's clearly got something going on, right? They're not just giving you a, you know, they're not just not helping you. They're actually hindering you. That's bad, right? And this would be an example of a kind of phobia or fear induction where you're trying to scare this person into complying with uh, not listening to the girlfriend, right? Just don't listen to her or you need to break up with her. She shouldn't really be in your life because, you know, she's counter to you getting help. Uh, you should be afraid of such people who are, you know, hostile or antagonistic to to you and us and what we are doing here, right? Uh, you know, there's all kinds of language tricks here too. But the bottom line is that this is an example of uh, a phobia induction, and there are hundreds of these things that happen in Scientology. This is just the first layer of it. I mean, it goes deeper and deeper, but every one of them is anchored on the idea. Every fear, every phobia that is induced is anchored on the idea that the cult is all, the cult knows the truth, the cult has it all down, figured it all out. 
your job as a cult member or follower is to toe the line, do the drills, do the exercises, practice the mantras, do the chanting, do whatever it is you're supposed to be doing. And anybody who gets in your way, anybody who has something different or difficult to say about it, they are your enemy. And, uh, and it's all about threatening your future goals and purposes and achievements, which strikes directly at your emotional needs, right? Because, because uh, of course, that's aligned with your, you know, emotional needs. That having goals, having purposes, having a, you know, making things happen in your life is something we all need. And, uh, and if there is something getting in the way of that, we would want to deal with that. We'd want that out of the way. And that, and so anything that is scaring you or putting you in a fearful place about achieving your goals or purposes is you know, this kind of fear induction, right? Because these are, these are artificial fears and phobias. These, these aren't real. There's, there, there's nothing wrong with being uh, critical of Scientology. And, and just because your girlfriend has a problem with it doesn't mean that your spiritual progress and eternity is threatened. That's not true at all. It's, it's arbitrary nonsense. But the cult will insist this is true. Uh, whether it's Scientology or whether it's some other group who is telling you that, you know, anybody who talks trash about your faith or about your beliefs or gives you a hard time about it or ridicules you about it. Well, clearly these are people who, you know, mean you harm and you need to, you need to cut those people out of your life, right? Because the cult is the more important senior thing all the time, every time. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of how the phobia induction works. There's a million variations of how to scare the shit out of somebody. Uh, but whether it's done for that individual in that individual moment or whether it's done as a part of regular dogmatic practice or whether, um, you know, the person even can do it to themselves after a while, you, you, you know, you induce enough of this in a person, you put them in a different frame of mind and they start making up their own fears and their own sort of things. And, and, you, and they can actually create a kind of paranoia in in followers, and this is this is uh, crucial to, or uh, certainly a part of, creating the us versus them mentality. Right, is you have to be a little fearful of them, so you'll be more cohesive with us. <laughs> right, you're gonna stick with us because we're the good guys. We have your best interest at heart. They do not. You know, it's that kind of attitude. So um, anyway, so I hope that helps clarify that or give some more information about that. Thanks, uh, thanks for asking, and, uh, and feel free to ask me more about that. Oscar Q. Zilch, what is Hill 10 in Scientology? A Hill 10 is basically the most extreme version of an emergency that can happen in the, in the world or culture of Scientology, right? The most difficult of extreme emergencies that have very little time to get them wrapped up or finished or accomplished or uh, dealt with, or there's an extraordinary amount of difficulty and effort involved in it, and it's gonna, and, and, and it's really, really super. Uh, sort of live or die, right? It's it, it's like it, it, do or die. We, we we have to make this happen, and the Hill Ten is a a must be dealt with emergency. And I've always I don't know the origin of the term in Scientology. It doesn't sound like something that Hubbard actually made up. He probably got it from somewhere, maybe the military or something. But the the concept I always had in my head was that if you were to you know sort of grade the, the hill that you have to climb, right? And and zero would be flat, one, two, three, four, five. You know, 10 would be steep near vertical, you know, rise up having to climb this hill 10, right? This like, extra, it would take extraordinary effort and skill and ability to uh, to deal with the hill 10, right? It's just this this, this big, big problem. Uh, that's pretty much in a, in, in a nutshell. And this is something that uh, is a term that we heard often in the Sea Org. Public don't necessarily hear it very often. Staff hear it from time to time. You know, when there's a, a hill 10 would be not just that the rent is due, but that there's a, um, there's a uh, property tax valuation on the church and it's going to, and, the, and they have like, you know, in the next month or two, they have to pay $50,000 in property tax or something, right? Now, I'm just, I'm just throwing that out there as a, 
as a thing, not all churches pay property tax or whatever, but just like a sudden bill or a mor- a balloon payment on a mortgage. There we go. That was uh, something we dealt with in Santa Barbara. Um, you know, you got this mortgage payment and here comes this big balloon payment and it's a hill 10, man. We got it. We've got to make it. If we don't make this payment, they're kicking us out on the street. It's that simple, right? So we've got to, it's do or die. Um, so, so those would be the kind of hill 10s that you'd hear about at the public level or the staff level because this is when I was in Santa Barbara back in the day. But um, in the Sea Org, Hill 10s were like almost every other week, right? We were having these, because I've mentioned before often that the Sea Org is kept in motion and overcomes its own inertia by constant emergencies. They are kept in a constant threat state. Uh, a war footing, if you will, right? Things are always extremely urgent and important. There's always some, you know, tear down the world. The, everything's uh, riding on this kind of problem that has to be solved. And that happens week after week after week. And you very, very rarely have downtime in the Sea Org. Uh, meaning time when everything is just kind of operating normally. There's no emergency. Everybody's just showing up for post, doing their work, getting their food, going to bed at night. Everything's cool. Everything's on schedule. Everything is running routinely. That is very, very infrequent in that world. Uh, the Sea Org world is a world of frantic, what's the word, frenetic energy, right? Just, just constant and uh, people being kept in an incredibly stressed out state of mind, Hill 10s are one of the gimmicks that are used to keep that going. Uh, and it's just, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. There's no, there's no, uh, uh, it's arbitrary. It's created by David Miscavige. He's the one who sets the pace and tone for the Sea Org from the top. And he wants it that way. He, he could change it tomorrow. He could chill everybody out. Everybody calm down. Let's just get our work done. Let's do it in a routine way. Let's have time off. Let's let's get paid. Let's get some decent food. Let's get some sleep. Let's get some study. Let's do all the things, right? Um, but he chooses not to run Scientology that way. Uh, and there's really no external reason they have to operate in this crazy way that they do. Uh, it's all just control. So there you go. Gary Morris. I'm about three quarters of the way through your book, and it has really opened my eyes. What a fantastic read. I've been reading other sources from a Christian aspect, saying that the further up the bridge you go, the more it questions those sort of beliefs, saying that really God is a lie. That questions Scientology itself, as it's meant to be a spiritual embodiment having religious overtones. What a contradiction. Also, I've read reports that LRH was meant to be this fantastic, selfless character, but this couldn't be further from the truth. He was actually quite a troublemaker. So why do Scientologists believe there's nothing better than Scientology? Wouldn't this invalidate anything a non-Scientologist has to say, which goes for the vast majority of the planet? How come Scientology hasn't cleared the planet like it says it's supposed to? All right, Gary, thank you very much for this. Uh, and thank you very much for the kind words about my book, by the way. I really appreciate it. If you are interested, the book is right here. <laughs> uh, okay, now, and you, links below. All right, now, in terms of answering your question, um, you had a couple points here. For Number one, uh, the whole thing about Scientology and God is does not invalidate Scientology's relig- religiosity. There are lots of religions in the world that don't have a God figure as such and don't worship a God figure as such, but they are still valid religious, supernatural beliefs and practices. Uh, We could talk about Hinduism or Buddhism, which have a a panoply of gods or no gods at all. We could talk about pagan religions, which have uh, the earth as a planet as a god or the universe itself as a god. It doesn't require a God figure in order to be a religion is kind of the point. So I just wanted to address that. There, there are other reasons, I believe, that Scientology should not have and doesn't earn religious status, but it's God worship or lack of it isn't one of those reasons. Um, and maybe I'm reading too much into what you wrote here, but that's that's kind of what I was getting, so I wanted to respond to that part first. Now, you've also um, asked here about Hubbard, or Scientologists rather, yes, Hubbard was absolutely a troublemaker, you nailed it on that. 
Um, but why do Scientologists believe there's nothing better than Scientology, right? What's up with that? Um, and would this invalidate anything a non-Scientologist has to say? Yes, it, it would. You're nailing it on that. That's absolutely right. And that's the whole point about cults and cultic thinking is that it is in um, dis, it, it's out of alignment. It's not in harmony with the, with the larger society or the larger culture in which the cult operates. Um, that is a given with cults, is they're always running a little askew. Now, their beliefs don't necessarily have to be based in some weird, deviant, Xenu-based thing. In order for them to run a bit askew, you could have perfectly regular Christian beliefs in a group, but you dial it up to 11, right, where you start saying that you have to kill all the LGBT people, right, because the Bible says so, and now we have a really serious problem, and this group is now a group that is running askew to the bigger culture in which they live. That's the kind of example. That's uh, kind of what I'm talking about there. Cult members don't have any problem with that. In fact, it's that disparity and that and that disagreement with the bigger society that reinforces their cult beliefs. Um, that's that's part of the picture, right? It's us versus them. So we're the good guys in our little group, and maybe it's a big group, maybe it's a little group, but whatever the group is, they are convinced of the truth and and uh, at the, you know the veracity of their beliefs, their ideas, their cult leader, their dogma their system, whatever it is that they are doing or thinking, it's, it, it's, it's very exclusionary. It's very um, exclusive. It's very elite, right? It's us, and we're the special chosen people. And this is, uh, this is very, very crucial to the cult attitude, no matter what cult you're talking about. Not even religious cults. I mean, hell, business cults get this way. MLMs, for example, multi-level marketing schemes. Man, you will not find people more dedicated to their little system and how perfect it is and how it's going to make them so much money if they just invest enough of themselves and get enough of their social network you know, destroyed in the process, they are going to become a millionaire. They're sure of it. And they don't care what anybody else outside the, 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 the multi-level marketing scheme thinks about it. They know they're right, and they know everybody else is wrong. That's part of the cult mindset. It's an extreme mindset. That By definition, it is extreme. Um, at least on the topic of the cult. People in cults don't have to be extremists across their entire life. But on the subject of the cult, they lose all perspective. They're all proportionality and and view of objectivity. You could say is gone. It's out the window. It's never. It's not coming back. Not until they start getting doubts and problems with the group and start. That's what the whole waking up process is: is regaining your critical thinking skills and reducing your extremism. Right, the, the level of fanaticism. That's what that's all about. So. Um, so when you ask, you know, so why do Scientologists believe there's nothing better than Scientology? Because for each individual Scientologist, they have had some kind of an epiphanal moment, which they believed was transformational to their existence. So much so, and, and they believe that Scientology brought that about, that it was the source of the transformation. And because that transformation was so powerful for them, that moment was such an emotional high, they're hooked, right? Just like a drug addict. It's really not a whole lot different, to be honest. And that compels them to continue the practice, to continue doing auditing, continue, continue listening to Hubbard, keep going, keep immersing themselves in the culture. And of course, the other people in the group are encouraging this. And egging them on. And yes, go. You go, girl. You go, man. You, you do this, right? You become a Scientologist. You, you, this, is, this is the truth and the light, man. It's great, isn't it? Um, that's the attitude from the group that they're now in. And they're finding community and they're finding support. Everybody's, everybody loves them. And everybody likes them. Everybody's, they're getting along with everybody. It's a really, really fantastic experience. Uh, and people love it, right? That's why they fall for it. And they don't think critically about it. And then they get in and get in and get in deeper and deeper and deeper until they're in so deep that they're just not thinking straight anymore. 
basically. And like I mentioned, they, they lose perspective and, and proportionality. Um, so as far as your last question, because you asked a bunch here, how come Scientology hasn't cleared the planet like it says it's supposed to? Because it doesn't work. That's why. Because it's a money-making scam. It does work. Uh, it is working wonderfully at clearing the planet of people who are willing to give it money. <laughs> it's stretching there. Um, but you know what I mean. It's, it's uh, As far as its scam aspect goes, it's working wonderfully. But as far as clearing the planet goes, well, that's, that's an endless hamster wheel that you can keep the members on forever. They can just run and run and run on that treadmill of chasing that carrot of, of clearing the planet. They can, they, they can just do that for decades. I did. I, I did that. And I, I spent a good part of my life, almost 30 years, uh, chasing that carrot until I finally realized this is never going to be accomplished. This is just a pipe dream. This is, this is just nonsense being put out there to, to distract us. And sure enough, that's exactly what it is. So they don't even, you know, Miscavige doesn't want the planet cleared. Not really, not, not, not deep down, right? Because that would, that would stop the whole thing. And uh, we can't have that. But of course, they're not anywhere near clearing the planet because Scientology is also a tiny, microscopically small little group of people. I mean, you got to understand, Scientology is like 20, 30,000 people. That's it. That's all there is. So they're not even they're not even a, a, a statistical anomaly <laughs> compared to the population of this planet. They're nothing. They're, they're just not even on. They just don't even register on the on the on the the, the dial. So uh, so that's my answer to your to your question. I hope that I hope all that I, I informed and and helped uh, helped clarify some things. Rory, I'm a bit confused in regards to the term mental image pictures. According to Hubbard, every engram that gets stored in the reactive mind creates a mental image picture. And through auditing, engrams get run through and transferred to the analytical mind where they become memories rather than engrams. What happens to the mental image picture? When someone achieves the state of clear, they should have total recall of everything that ever happened to them over the course of the whole track, right? Are the mental image pictures stored in the analytical mind also? Another related question is what happens to engrams once someone starts the OT levels? Are they preoccupied with exorcising their body thetans and assume they've gotten rid of all of their engrams? Okay, well, this is just uh, Scientology Reactive Mind 101 today. <laughs> this is a lot. You're asking a lot here. Uh, so I'm going to do my very best to summarize this and put this together. Um, okay, because there's, there's some... there's. There's different levels of this. Uh, first off, mental image pictures is a construct L. Ron Hubbard created, which is the idea that you, me, and thee, everybody and everybody, is, is constantly storing duplicates or facsimiles of the physical universe in three dimensions. Every perceptic, every every perception you have, and it's not just the five senses, it's your spiritual senses, your body's sense of gravity and weight and this and that. There's all kinds of, uh, Hubbard lists out like 72 of these things or something. Um, all of these are being stored, mentally recorded by the mind. Now, how they're being stored is a changing story in Scientology over time. Maybe they're stored on punched protein molecules. And then Hubbard says, no, 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 no. There's not enough protein molecules to, to do all that, to store all that information. So it must be sheets of energy. And the Thetan, the spirit, is sort of manufacturing via this, this black box device called a mind. The Thetan is using the mind and sort of feeding an energy or something so that it will create these images of the physical universe and store them. And every single, uh, I think it's 76 or 72 or something, images are stored every second. And so you're accumulating, you know, thousands and millions and billions of these mental image pictures. Um, but then there's other information later in Scientology that seems to indicate that you are not actually walking around with billions and billions and billions of pictures, these sheets of energy that you're, you're sort of creating that, that, that hold or represent these perceptions for you. Instead, the Thetan recreates them in the moment. 
based on his or her, I guess things don't really have gender. So like based on its memories or its, or its knowingness, right? It just simply knows what happened because it lived it. And because it knows it, it's able to recreate or reproduce that moment in time as a picture. Okay. So here we have, you know, two or three different ideas of how storage happens. And who cares, right? Like, does it really matter what the actual answer is? Ultimately, not really in terms of mental image pictures. But engrams are a special kind of mental image picture. And this is where we come to the reactive mind. You have, you have a, a, a mind, and it's divided into this analytical mind and the reactive mind. Now, actually, this also changes in Scientology because Dianetics puts forward the idea that the mind is analytical, reactive, and somatic. There's three parts to the mind. And then the somatic mind sort of gets dumped over time and is sort of considered the body or something or part of the body or instinct or whatever in the body. And so then you have a reactive mind and an analytical mind. And Hubbard later said, well, actually, the analytical mind is just you. That's just you as a spiritual entity. It's not, it's not really part of the mind as a mechanism or a construct that you, that you use. It's really just you as a spirit. That's the analytical mind. And so when you know things or you're calculating things or you're, you're you know, doing memory stuff, that's you as a spirit doing that. Okay. But the reactive mind is an actual thing. It's not you. It's separate from you. It's something you've created and you use it and, it was, and you were helped in creating it many, 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 many millions and billions of years ago. Uh, this mechanism called the reactive mind was created so that it would keep you out of trouble. And, of course, it did not do that, and it got you in all kinds of trouble. And the way that it does that, or one of the ways that it does that, is it creates these engrams. And engrams are mental image pictures, just like every other mental image picture, all the perceptions. But there are two things involved in engrams that separate them from all other mental image pictures, and that is pain and unconsciousness, right? A, a lessening of diminishing of awareness and pain. Uh, physical, it can be spiritual too, or loss or threat of loss. That's a, that's a sub unit of the engram, you could say, which is called a secondary. It's a different kind of mental image picture that's sort of connected to an engram uh, for its, for its strength or power. But you, but the engram is the important thing that that's the thing that has pain and unconsciousness. It's a memory that you're carrying around with you that has electrical charge connected with it and it's sort of a it's sort of Hubbard doesn't say it's permanently kept up but it's easily brought back and what's called re-stimulated by if you see things or run into things in the present time that remind you or that approximate the the conditions of the engram then it comes back into play your reactive mind is always operating always watching and always on the lookout for anything that looks or sounds or feels or tastes or whatever, anything like your past engrams. And you're carrying around billions and billions of engrams. So the fact of the matter is that if this was all true, if all this bullshit I'm sitting here laying out for you right now was all true, and you actually had billions and billions of engrams, you wouldn't be able to move without being re-stimulated a thousand million times over, um, right? Because everything would re-stimulate you because everything would approximate something that happened to you in the past. So this whole re-stimulation thing is a very, very questionable mechanism that Hubbard describes. You know, we all make it make sense because it sounds like it makes sense. Oh, yeah, you know, I was, I was at a waterfall and I got knocked over and I hurt myself. So the next time I'm at a waterfall, my reactive mind goes, hey, waterfall, danger, right? That sounds all sensible enough. But if you have billions and billions of engrams just waiting to be re-stimulated, then, then a whole chunk of them would always be in re-stimulation. And you wouldn't even be able to move. You know, you'd be so, like, overstimulated all the time. Um, 
So it doesn't really make a whole lot of logical sense. Hubbard's little system falls apart very, very quickly if you really start thinking about it. But in Scientology, this is all sort of logically consistent that, that you're not constantly re-stimulated. You can be re-stimulated, and an engram will come back into play, and then the energy contained in it will slap you around, right? Will hurt you or will cause you to change your behavior uh, because the reactive mind doesn't want you hurting yourself again or whatever. Um, now, the answer to your question in terms of, you know, after you go clear, okay, so clear is the state where you undo the reactive mind. Now, I'm not going to get into a whole thing about this today. I, I, I think, yeah, I don't even know if I've, I, I'm pretty sure I've talked about it before, but there's more in the reactive mind, according to Hubbard than just engrams. Engrams are a key component of how the reactive mind operates, but there are other things there too. Things called goals problem masses. And these have all these millions and billions of engrams are kind of glued to these GPMs, these goals problem masses. And these are supposed to represent goals you've had in the past as a Thetan and the problems that you ran into from other people opposing your goals. And this is results in a, a mass, a black mass of all this energy congealed and, and, and coming, climbing together. And you carry this around with you in your reactive mind. And it's these GPMs that really have the power and force in the mind. Uh, so I did kind of explain it a little bit there. So that's that's how engrams kind of really mess with you in the reactive mind, according to high-level confidential stuff in Scientology. This whole GPM thing isn't confidential, but how you address it and take it all apart and go clear, that's all confidential. That's on the clearing course. Um, so... Anyway, um, so as you can tell already, I think from my answer, this is not really a very sensible explanation Hubbard provides here for all this stuff. And the story changed over time. And it didn't really change to make it clearer. It changed to make it even weirder. And so me sitting here trying to explain it all sounds, I'm sure I'm coming across like I'm talking nonsense right now in some ways. And I'm, and I'm really doing my best to try to dumb this down and make it as simple an explanation as possible. But there's a lot of holes here, you know, like, uh, and your, and your questions bring up some of those holes, right? Like, you know, when someone um, have all this total recall and what about the pictures stored in the analytical mind? And um, you know, what about this stuff? Well, it's all supposed to go away after you're clear you no longer have your own reactive mind. It's gone. So theoretically speaking, if we, if we do kind of go with Hubbard here, you don't have any more engrams to affect your thinking. What you now have, and what the big secret of the OT levels is, is you have the reactive mind of about a million body thetans that are stuck to you. And that's what you get to deal with on the OT levels is you got to get rid of all those body thetans because they're stuck to your body. They have their own reactive mind and their own engrams and their own crap. But you can't differentiate between their crap and you because they're stuck to you. And you've never even been aware of their existence until now. So... Now the OT levels consist of you getting rid of those body thetans and their engrams and their mental intrictions and their nonsense. It's not you that's the problem. It's them that's the problem, and you got to deal with all of them. So you're clearing all of those body thetans off of you rather than clearing engrams, right, or a reactive mind. So that's kind of how it all comes together, I guess you could say, on the OT levels. And each OT level is a gradual step-by-step -step more and dealing with more and more of the body thetans, right? Until you finally get through OT level seven and you've got them all. After years of, of going in session every day, multiple times a day, 
you finally get rid of all the body thetans and you're clean. And it's just little old you and your little tiny body and that's it. No more external problems or influences on your thinking and you get to be the simple little baby thetan that you are and that's what ot8 is then supposed to start opening up the universe for you um unfortunately in the real world and how this really works is people who get through ot7 are usually driven a little bit mad Right, it's a it's a narcissistic dream. It is, uh, you know, we've covered this in some detail uh, as far as what happens on the OT levels and how these thetans, these body thetans, are exorcised, and it's all about uh, inducing uh, very, very deeply narcissistic attitudes and ideas, and um, and yet having to deal with the real world reality that you're going in session every day, getting rid of all these body thetans and supposedly becoming a more and more and more powerful being. And yet you're bankrupt or your life is falling apart or your wife is leaving you. All this, all this usual crap that goes on in life happens to you just like it happens to everybody else. And trying to reconcile that and make all that make sense. And I mean, it's just, it, you go mad, right? You just go a little bit, uh, woof. And I'm not saying that they're, you know, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm using this in, a, in an exaggerated sense. I don't mean it, it really drives you into uh, true insanity, but boy, you really can't tell the difference much with uh, some of the stuff that comes out of Scientologists' mouths, especially high-level Scientologists. They say and think some of the most insanely irrational stuff you've ever heard. Uh, and they think of it as true, right? Because their heads have been having to wrap around all of this and not only understand it, but then apply it to themselves every day for years on end, right? It, 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 it's a it's an exercise in, in, uh, in, in madness. So... Anyway, I hope all that made some degree of sense. I really do. Uh, but that's those are my answers. It's you know Scientology is not necessarily always really simple to understand. It's very convoluted at certain levels, and the upper levels are are, are certainly complicated and weird and and even internally contradictory. And that was one of the biggest reasons when I when I finally saw those levels that I went, oh my God, this is really all bullshit, isn't it? You know, and it all kind of got so clear. So, yeah, clear. So there you go. Um, there's your answer. And I hope, I, hope that, I hope that works. All right. So we've come to the end of our show. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me blabber on at a mad rate about all this. I hope my answers have been informative, entertaining, and educational. That's always the goal. Help me make that goal uh, better by giving me any positive feedback or suggestions or comments. Uh, and of course, again, please support my work and this channel. I really could use your help. And uh, it is how I will get all the things done I need to get done for 2024. See you guys soon. Bye-bye.